This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. Hey guys, Docs in the Box podcast. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Kelly Starrett. You can hear the first part on iTunes. Hope you enjoy it. The you know the physios are in this realm right now where I'm, I'm taking our my profession to task, where we keep having conversations saying you know we don't need to catastrophize or medicalize everything like your knee swollen and for me I'm like yeah that's a problem right it's what I call a lagging indicator for me your swollen knee is just as important as you sucking in wattage today like what's going on you know it's it's an adaptation error. But imagine you start to have that knee swollen. For me, I crashed on skis seven years ago. And so that's, that was the initial trauma. I had two kissing bone lesions and basically imploded my meniscus. Comma, still had a ton of function and zero pain. So I didn't have knee surgery because I had pain. I had knee surgery because I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. Skiing with my family started to be a, a pain in the butt. You know, a mountain bike ride, I'd drop my seat and be like, ooh, I don't know if I want to flex my knee that much, right? Start whinging on things like that. You know, like we'd be at the beach and Juliet, we want to be play Frisbee. I'm like, I don't know if I have enough Celebrex to play Frisbee, hon. And Juliet's like, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's time for you to, to think about this. And it was be, the swelling when they went into the knee. Of course, they were surprised by the clinical picture, what they saw me do and the presentation of the actual joint surfaces because i don't i want people to appreciate that your body can take a lot of abuse and we don't know sometimes why it becomes sensitized and even why a certain tissue is a particular pain generator what i can say is that a swollen joint is not a healthy joint a swollen joint and so the hole like between my kneecap and trochlea which gave me no knee pain at all they were like holy crap you had basically, these tissues were so soft. And I was like, well, it's only been swollen for seven years. You think that had something to do with it? <laughs> you know. And so just to get people around, it's not an emergency that something is swollen, but I want you to appreciate exactly what you're saying. If you ran around with this inflamed system all the time, we have tissues that aren't capable of handling sustained loads for decades and decades. And so again, why do we try to manage sleep? Not because if you sleep today, you won't get injured. We manage sleep because you have a more robust picture. And so I think one of the things that we can be doing is pointing positive. You know, like it's really difficult for me to say, do these sets of behaviors and you won't get injured. In fact, that's impossible to say. What I can say is if you do these sets of behaviors, I'll have better biomotor expression of the body, which means you can generate more wattage. You can lift faster, right? We always teach to the highest expression of what a stable joint system, healthy tissue system looks like. If you don't do that, that's a choice that I want to give you to make. If you want to run like a duck and collapse your arches, that's fine. Like I was watching a woman skate ski past me today and they're like, she's a racer. And I was like, look at her left valgus knee. Like her knee is open. <laughs> she has this tibial rotation. She doesn't have any pain, but I'm like, you have to come out of this at one year, at five years, at a hundred years. And sometimes it's difficult for us to say, don't do this because you'll get injured. What I need to say to that woman, what I try to say to that is, hey, I bet we can make you go faster and I bet you can generate more force more often if we put you into better positions. 
And those positions are also joint sparing and tissue sparing, right? These behaviors allow us to be a little bit more gnarly as human beings and have a little bit more tolerance in the system for a beer and some ice cream, which is everything for me. <laughs> Can we just talk a little bit about to ice or not to ice? Because I feel like that's a common... It just uh, came up two days ago recommendation oh, yeah. that you know that is sort of ingrained in yeah, the musculoskeletal you know, world sure sure so when someone ices something really we ice for pain let's be totally honest about it right people are like i'm icing for swelling i'm like well not really it hurts that's why you're icing right and what a powerful analgesic ice is it's really incredible in fact if i have a kid who gets stung by a bee I give them this thing called a placebo ice bag, right? Which they put on their body and they like, oh, it's, you right. So the key here is if we really look at what we're trying to do, we can ask what are the best sets of behaviors that are gonna allow my body to heal at its maximal rate? And certainly I think one of the problems with icing is that the, the intervention is very nonspecific. The timing is nonspecific. The tissue temperature is nonspecific. Are we actually cooling the joint down, right? Are we measuring that? So, you know, in all of these other aspects, we're not applying the same rigor to icing, right? Ice some for a little bit until you're numb. Well, numbness is great because if you don't have to deal with it, you know, it's no problem. I ran into a case that had happened in San Francisco when I first got out of PT school where this person had been running a cryo unit after knee surgery and she ran it and ran it and ran it and ran it and ran it ran it and basically gave herself frostbite and when she stopped running her tissues would thaw out and she'd have horrible pain so she'd turn it back on and she ended up with like a gangrene leg and like major tissue trunk she just froze her body right and i was like okay so that's the extreme end of what's possible with ice <laughs> but what i want people to appreciate again is what are we trying to do here well is the healing response of my body a mistake? And what I'm gonna say is in two and a half million years of evolution, it's not a mistake. It's really a powerful reaction sometimes. And what we're really trying to do is say, hey, look, that swelling, because if you ask people like, hey, what are you trying to do? Why are you icing? They're like, I'm controlling inflammation. I'm like, okay, is inflammation the problem? No, it's the reaction to the, the trauma that is why we're inflamed what you're really trying to do is limit the amount of swelling. So the question is, do I rate limit the healing response through ice or do I better do a better job by decongesting the tissues by moving the swelling out of there? And some of the problems I have with, with icing when some of the research says is that it actually causes the lymphatics to become porous. So all of that sewage that was sequestered in your lymphatic system becomes kind of dumped back into the interstitial tissue, which causes a secondary inflammatory response to those, those, that kind of goo and trash, you know, the sewage of your body. So once again, knee is swollen. Does icing reduce swelling in the knee? No, it doesn't do anything to evacuate the swelling, right? But it limits the swelling. And what ends up happening is it limits the inflammatory response the same way that non-steroidals limit the inflammatory response. And one of the things we've seen in our medical community is fewer and fewer prescriptions of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs because why? They may limit some healing applications, right? And so what I want people to realize and appreciate is in two and a half million years of evolution, 
icing has been on the scene from the 1970s when that kid cut his arm off and they put the arm into the the ice that was probably the genesis right of how soccer moms started icing things prior to the 1970s in the sports literature in the sports uh, science and the sports management there's no icing going on at all and so it's a relatively new phenomenon, the icing in itself. And I just want to point out that Gabe Merkin, who is the physician who coined the term rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation. I know Gabe personally, and Gabe even came out a few years ago and was like, by the way, I think we were wrong. Probably shouldn't ice that. And we should probably get as much pain-free early mobilization of those tissues as we can. And even the position of the American orthopedics you know, group says, hey, we need early movement of the system to have current remodeling of the tissues like if we're going to have tendons be tendons we need an appropriate dose response right if we want to keep those tissues from coming stuck down and a nasty scar ball from forming turns out we need to have a little mechanotransduction the system and mechanotransduction as everyone knows is what we call loading of the tissues so that the tendon can be a tendon the fascia can be a fascia so circling back around for me when i first started playing with not icing it blew my mind right i was like is this gonna happen and i had one of our coaches who had torn his acl playing basketball and i was like we're not gonna ice this and he was like what and i was like trust me it's gonna be fine and our outcome was bananas because i was able to get him working on decongesting and managing pain early on by using electricity through these these decongestant devices and that was the first time i was like holy crap maybe there's a better way, right? And what I have come to understand and appreciate is sometimes when my military guys are in these dry, austere environments, there's no ice, what then? When my people are working in Haiti and they sprain an ankle, what then? When people live in this, you know, warm environments and there's no ice, what then? And so it turns out, again, I think that icing isn't the first choice. I think that if you ice something, it's going to heal at a rate limited sort of rate and your body will wait to warm back up and then do what it's going to do anyway. But what I'm trying to do is maximize some of those prolific, proliferative phases, maximize some of those acute phases where we can get the biggest bang for the buck. And it turns out maybe icing is not the best way to do that. Sure is easy, right? It's easy to put a bag of peas on there. But once again, I'm like, really, that's your intervention. A passive sit on your ass intervention is your intervention. Good luck. My athletes will be on the, on the podium and you will not be. I don't know. Is that, is, I'm trying to say, look, I don't use ice. I think a warm margarita is a, is a crime, but um, my, daughter, <laughs> my daughter is sneaking up and stealing a, a, a sip of my Rodler right here. But um, so we just don't use it in our practice because we also think we have better tools and alternatives, which comes back around to one of the first conversations we had is, look, I want to make sure that we don't take things away from people without giving them another way to self-soothe, without giving them a different model, right? Um, you know, in, in clinics that work with pediatrics, they have the buzzy bee, right? Which is a little vibration device. So they basically buzz the kid with this high frequency oscillation and then you can give the injection and the kid doesn't feel the injection at all. And that's a pretty good indicator that movement really can help us manage pain. So not only are we not moving when we ice, we're also deconnecting the brain from the tissues, which for me is also problematic. Do you, 
as do you have the same thought as far as you know when, when athletes like jump into ice baths after like you know is that great so yeah. you know i appreciate that because it, it's confusing so a couple things i follow the guidelines of um our friends at xpt laird hamilton and gabby reese and when we do cold water immersion whole body cold water immersion we don't do it longer than three minutes and the second you start shivering you're out and we put the cold water immersion as far away from the stimulus for adaptation as we can. So that stimulus for adaptation is exercise. So if you're exercising, I don't have you ice bath afterwards because I don't want to potentially blunt the adaptation from your exercise, which is what we're seeing from the ice baths is that actually you can't have the full adaptation response. It delays and, and sort of suppresses some of those natural things which is one of the reasons we're exercising. We exercise not to burn calories. We exercise to disrupt homeostasis so we can have an, a, a, a response to that, right? We've disrupted homeostasis. Now we have a, a response to that. We have a more robust person on the other side. So anything in behaviors that limit that for me are choices that I'd like to, someone to make a different choice on. Hey, I think you should eat whole foods. I think you should get some sleep. I think you should drink some water, right? Are you walking around decongesting? So when we put ice in there, we try to move it as far away from we can as, as we can. And again, a three minute intervention of a cold plunge isn't the same thing as obsessively icing your knee for 20 minutes, three to five times a day. Comma, the other thing I would just add in there is that if you come back from a run or a workout and it's 110 degrees, get in the ice bath, drop your core temperature down so your body can stop spending all its energy cooling you and it can start spending its energy on right on healing you and managing the adaptation to the exercise so that's how we use the ice and the cold water immersion we like it first thing in the morning not right stacked with training do you think there's any uh, benefit to alternating the cold baths with hot and things like sauna and then or yeah cold? i do i think we could call that range of motion of vasculature how's that right? Making your vasculature go very tight and then wide open and very tight and wide open. And I think, I suspect, you know, heat shock proteins aside and all of the wonderful things that we get out of being hot, um, it's a wonderful way for people to manage. I mean, the, the research of the sauna is, is stellar, but it's a great way for people to hit a reset at the end of the night, right? Remember, I think one of the things that we're doing right now is most of us are caught in these really insidious, depressant, you know, stimulant cycles where it's coffee, 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 five hour energy, hit the brakes. I can't go to sleep right now. I'm on the alcohol and the ambient and the THC. And then I'm like, Oh, I feel so groggy. I slept like crap. I don't know why. And then I get on the, you know, the, the caffeine again. And if that sounds extreme, let me tell you about one of the professional baseball teams I worked with the year they won the pennant their starting pitches were taking 10 milligrams of Adderall in the morning and then another 10 milligrams of Adderall before they pitched. And by the way, 20 milligrams of Adderall is a big dose of Adderall. I'm not a physician here, but that's a lot of speed. And you know, how you, <laughs> you know how you fall asleep after Adderall? You take two Ambien, like bam, two Ambien. Or then you wake up, you take one Ambien, and four hours later, you take one more Ambien. And then in the morning, God, you feel so tired and groggy, so you take some Ambien or you take some Adderalls, you know, our, our cyclists from the Tour de France actually have to cycle off their sleep meds because they're so addictive, 
right? They're, they're so messed up, they can't sleep, they go on sleep meds to try to manage some sleep during the Tour de France, then they have to go hardcore and have a couple bad weeks of sleep afterwards. So do I think giving people a way of hitting the bricks is great? Yes. So getting hot and getting cold, will it's, you know, an easy way to think about it is two of the most expensive physio physiologic features that your body does, heating itself up, cooling itself down. Thermal regulation for the human body is the game right? Brain temperature really is important, right? Um, I mean, what do you guys call it? It's, it's like, what's the malignant hypothermia? I mean, that's a problem, right? And so one of the things that we see is that if we throw people into some hot cold, they will fall asleep because they're so exhausted. So again, I, I'm looking for input here. And, um, but what I think that that improves circulation in so much that getting hot or going for a walk would, breaking a sweat would. I love the sauna. If I could put a sauna in everyone's home in America, I think we'd have a better society. Even if just because your phone can't go in the sauna and you're forced to be in a small space interacting <laughs> with people, maybe that's the magic of the sauna. My wife and I talk to each other in the sauna, right? So I, so like, it's sort of a broad question, but so like, what do we do as, as healthcare providers as musculoskeletal yeah. care providers, how, how, do, how do we make this system better? Even when it comes to something as simple, you know, something that, you know, sort of break it down, even as something as like post-surgery recovery, right? And there's obviously some things that are maybe the recommendations being made that aren't exactly the well, best. Let's, we'll call and, it you know, how do we, it's yeah, practice, you know, right? so how do we, how do, how do we, what steps do we make to, to change that? Or what would you, ideally, what would you like to you know, see that? How, how would you see that happen? Yeah. Um, you know, I just was speaking at a conference with, again, 70 physical therapists who all these independent practices. And one of the things I can speak to is one of my experiences. So I started making videos 10 years ago on YouTube. The iPhone didn't have a video camera, but I just decided as a provider to make a video a day for a year. And part of that was I wanted a resource for my patients to have post seeing me. So post treatment, post interaction, post conversation, and be like, here's some additional follow-up I want you to see. And if I give someone a handout, man, that goes in the trash. Give them a YouTube video, they can watch that. They can, they can digest that, right? And what I found was it ended up also being useful because I was able to cross a lot of things off the list prior to someone coming. Because what I was seeing was that I was doing a lot of unskilled care that I didn't think was worthy of my graduate degree. I was like, why, why are, did you take a day off from work to come see me? Cause your quads are stiff. Like, why didn't you manage that? Or you don't have any hip extension. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know what I mean? At some point I was like, Hey, I want you to be able to handle this on your own time. And so, what I advocate for young physical therapists is, hey, I need you to have an Instagram channel because your patients can then see you and be get this micro learning sort of interaction where you're actually meeting them in a way where they, you can be giving them the information. And as a physician or in medical practice, we sometimes really feel constrained in silos. So in terms of doctors out there, I mean, this podcast, the your social media, Amy, for example, 
are exactly how I would begin to untangle this and be saying, well, where am I, the people I'm caring for, where are they getting their information? How can I give them the information in the way that they're consuming it? Well, it turns out they're on YouTube, they're on Instagram, they're, you know, you don't need to snap your patients. But the idea <laughs> here is one of the things we can do is sort of expand the boundaries of a role. We don't have to expand a role, but expand the boundaries of a role. So you're going to be like, hey, I'm going to go see my physiatrist. And you're like, hey, I need you to go onto my site and watch these, th these five things that you can incorporate into your life. Because what we want to do is give people a choice. Like expert clinicianship is always a compromise between what we think is best practice and what the person thinks they're going to do was best practice for them. So in that middle, right, that breaks this old patriarchal model, which is like, you do what I say, you know, like that physician who young kid on who was telling me to use this wound vac. I was just like, dude, you know, you're, you're shit in the bed here yeah. in terms of, of conversation. Right. But if a physician can begin to think about, hey, I'm a stakeholder in this person's care beyond the six or 10 minutes I have. There's been times where I've met with my physician where I start to get super stressed because she's spending so much time with me. I'm like, I know what your schedule looks like. You need to get out of here. And she's like, no, 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 this is my job where I get to really get in. She's like, this is the only thing that really matters. And not every physician has that opportunity. But what we're trying to do is move the, the healthcare closer to the daily lives of the people we're seeing, the people we're interacting with. So I want my physician to be in my gym. I want my physician to be in my lap, in my phone. I want, that's the kind of relationship we can really have where we can jump on things early or I can get advice or you can ping me. And I understand you have a huge book of business of, you know, and the, Currently, I think one of our problems is in our managed care, non-fee-for-service model, there's always someone else coming through this insurance system to see you. Because one of the things I ask physical therapy is, I'm like, who owns failed outcomes, right? How, how do we know if physical therapy has failed, right? If someone goes away, who, who owns the, the problem? And what we ask then is, like, if I'm always booked and overbooked as a physical therapist because there's a referral network that just keeps cramming people down. I'm not actually incentivized to do anything all because I, there's whether this person is successful or has a good outcome re measures or not. Look at the funnel. The funnel is full and overflowing. You can't see me for six weeks at Kaiser because that's the wait. When I was a student there, six weeks to be evaluated by a physical therapist. I'm like, that seems sort of less effective as a, as a problem. A physician's like, Hey, I need you to see this physical therapist six weeks later, you, you circle back up and the physician has got egg on her face. But meanwhile, again, it's, it's a, it's a system problem. So one of the things, again, I want to say, well, where are the places where we can begin to expand the conversations and social media is a really easy place to do it. Um, let me give you an example. There are two physical therapists, Bob and Brad, they're like Bob and bad Brad famous PTs. That's their handle. And there are a couple guys in their 60s in the middle of the country with three and a half million YouTube followers, three and a half million. It's bananas. And they have basically taken everything they know about physical therapy. They're like, they're like your crazy eccentric uncles. They're just classic old school guys. They're very kind. They're exactly the kinds of, you know, healthcare I want you to see. And they put up everything they know. And I guarantee you that when they came through the system, 
if I had said they were going to do that, their heads would have exploded. Meanwhile, they're able to expand the reach and the contact. And of course, it's not always there. But what you can start to do as a physician is curate what you think are your favorite resources. Here are great resources if you're more interested in nutrition. Here's how I think about sleep. Turn the camera on yourself, break that, that patriarchal medical wall and start being an interactive person with your patient. And that sort of water will seep into the ground and will begin to capture the patient's that will hear it, but at least we've given people the choice. So they're not walking straight into a, an overwhelming conversation. And I would say that's no different than someone who comes into my gym is like, Hey, I think I want to exercise. I'm like, great. Here's your Olympic lifting shoes. And you're in, you know, and you're going paleo and these are going to be your new friends and you're, you'll never wear those shoes again. And like they would, their heads would explode. Right. But three months later, as we have these link wise interventions, three to five hours a week, I think fundamentally, if you only see your physician once a year and you have no relationship with her, how would she possibly know what's going on in your life? So I say we can put it on the physician to rethink about, first of all, an easy way is to sort of say, how do we expand your healthcare model? And our physicians are smart, bright, talented people. You know, my, my youngest wants to be a physician and I'm like, great, it's going to be a wild ride between you and and the kind of medicine you think you want to practice, you know, 20 years from now. But, you know, that's how we're going to do it. More podcasts, physicians giving people the information about best practice in the way that they're consuming it. And I think that's, that's really where we have to start, right? Yeah, I mean, as part of what I see my, my job is, is sort of connecting people to the right Oh, love it. To the right people, you know, so finding, finding the right therapist for their problem, connecting them to other people with similar problems, finding them the right physicians that can help them. So, so I, you know, I'm building that network, at least among people that I know and, and trying to, you know, connect them to the right people that in and of itself can, can, can do a lot, even if I'm, I'm not the person doing anything well, other than I, making this connection. You know, again, if we reconceptualize the role of the physician, the physician is as equidistant as the trainer at YMCA, that trainer at YMCA has more power than the physician does, except for the moment where the person is, you know, is in the hospital. So what you're realizing is, wow, I have to work hard to curate a set of resources for my patient. Boy, they didn't teach that in medical school, right? It would have been great if I'd been a young student starting to put those favorite resources together, right? So that you can be giving people that instead of, wow, I'm a physician. This isn't the kind of medicine I wanted to practice. I don't feel great about my outcomes or the kind of relationships I'm having right? And it's, it's eating my soul to pay off the student loan debt. You know, it'd be nice if we could have this intervention earlier on, which means we have to be much more radical generalists and go against the tide of this deep specialization. You know, if you're a physical medicine doc, I'm like, well, let's expand that. Can you coach snatching? Can you teach someone to deadlift? I mean, that's right? Can you look at someone's program? Can you look at their, assess their warm-up and cool down? Can you look at their footwear, nutrition, right? Their running technique. I mean, if 80% 80 of runners are going to be injured in a year, it seems like running is like the greatest moneymaker for, for, you know, musculoskeletal care on the planet. So again, I think we end up putting a lot of bullshit on the plates of our physicians. I mean, like you failed me and I'm like, hold on, 
did you bring your running shoes to go see your doctor? Did you talk to her about your running technique? Did you like, I mean, what we're doing is we're like, Hey, my goldfish is sick. My car mechanic sucks. And I'm like, what, what is going on here? So if we're going to untangle this, I want to get closer to the places where people are consuming their healthcare information and ending up in there, you know, because one of our friends, Greg Cook says, if you're not the local movement expert, your, your client will find the local movement expert, the person who says they're the local expert. So yes, we, it is a little bit like we're going to have to compete in this attention economy and make sexy again, you know, medicine for the first time. Right. Um, I think a really good example, and it's not always the greatest example in terms of how it was done, but a good example is the, the birth control pill. There were kind of two physicians who came up with that. And one of the physicians was just a natural in front of the camera. And the other physician was a researcher. And I think there's a, a great book of biography about this called The Pill. And sort of the history of, of this. And the pill became adopted because, you know, I mean, birth control, reproductive rights wasn't like something that all the old men wanted to talk about. But this physician got out and made it a case for all the women and to be able to sort of understand this in these non-traditional ways. And it really made the traditional establishment uncomfortable. This person was giving press releases and talking to media and that's where we are now. So our physicians have to become our advocates, but that means we have to do a better job of preparing people so that when they have this interaction with their physician, it's actually meaningful and not just reaction. Like if you go to your physician and you're on fire, literally on fire, your first thing your physician is going to do is put you out, put the flames out, like they're going to tamp out that fire. And then we're like, oh, I don't know what the next conversation is because we're up and you, your chief complaint was being on fire. So where do we reconceptualize that? And how does modern medicine fit in? And I'm, again, I'm not talking about pathology or catastrophe. I'm talking about musculoskeletal care. And there's some aspect in the last 10 years where now, you know, over 50% of the problems a physician will see are musculoskeletal nature. Like how much time and treatment did you get in med school about musculoskeletal care? I'm not talking about the physiatrist on the call here. I'm talking about the average physician doesn't get a lot of education, musculoskeletal care. When I've lectured at Stanford, they had like a week, maybe two weeks, maybe less than that. Like, you know, five half hour lectures of musculoskeletal care. So, you know, again, I, I think we need to think differently about the problem if we're going to get to the bottom of it. And that starts by having a populace that isn't playing rehab catch up that every child says, well, of course I sleep eight hours. I learned that in the fifth grade. What's, what's the problem doc? You know what I mean? Like, of course I eat fruits and vegetables and as much protein as I can choke down. It doesn't matter the quality. Right. And then we can have the next conversation, but right now there's so much noise in the system. And I think as we're, we're seeing the inadequacies or we're seeing that our medical processes, including physical therapy, haven't adapted to meet what's happening in the world at the speed it's happening in the world. Yeah, I like that. And the thing is, you know, we talk a lot about like multidisciplinary care. What it's really about is just empowering the patient, right? Giving them resources and using things like social media are amazing for that because we want to ease the access for the patient or athlete to go on and then learn as much as they can, right? You wanna make it as easy as possible and having a, a network of resources to here, read this, check this, check this. And then by the time they get to you, you're already moving along that path. It just makes the whole interaction so much easier. You know, I just switched away from Kaiser 
and I went in for like a wellness check and the guy's like, why are you here? I was like, well, I should have a wellness check. Right. And you know, you should just get to know me a little bit. And he was just kind of like, what are your complaints? I was like, none. I feel great. I have, you know, it's all, you know, he just sort of was like, I don't know what to do. He's, so he did some manual muscle testing. I was like, you know, this has poor inter-rater reliability, sir. You know, like, you know, like I'm not, I, my hamstring weakness is not why I'm here. So, you know, I think what was so interesting was that, you know, I was trying to initiate a conversation. So, you know, me so that the next time I actually do need you, cause I have an ear infection or something going on, we can have a relationship already so that this interaction is faster. I can take your advice and you can also understand who I am. And that's not how our system is set up currently. You know what I mean? I mean, people are more like, I'm like, would you just let a random stranger cut your hair? And they're like, oh no. And I was like, so you just cho- closed your eyes and picked a doctor? Like, I was like, seriously? No, I mean, if you're in the ER, that's not your choice. Like, <laughs> cut my hair. Whoever's in the ER is fine. You know, right? You've chosen <laughs> for me. But I want people to, to start to create their own network. You know, you know, one of the things that I appreciated my, you know, my father, my grandfather, you know, again, much different era, you know, got out of the Air Force and then became a family practice doc up in Washington was, driving around, you know, rural Washington state, delivering babies and kicking, making house calls still, you know, I mean, that is the fifties and sixties. This is a very oh, different yeah. era, but man, did he have a really interesting insight into his patients because he was going to their homes and having talks. And when he was there, he would do, he would triage everyone else and jump on. Hey, can you take a look at this? And you know what I mean? And, and suddenly you're like, okay, that, that is healthcare that doesn't scale, but as long as this whole thing is for profit, we have a type one error in the system. You know, at Kaiser, if you present with high blood pressure, they're going to start you on a statin because it's easier to manage your cholesterol and your high blood pressure because those are cofactors that go together. And Kaiser has not given up on people. Kaiser has said, holy shit, these people will not change their behaviors. Let's protect them, right? Because obviously changing behavior is so difficult. So they were like, well, we're just going to save lives instead, right? Because that's how difficult it is to change behaviors. And again, I'll ask you, is your physician the person who should be changing your behavior? And I'm going to hypothesize that it is not, right? I want to see my physician when I have a complex thing that I cannot solve, right? I have a cancer, I have, you know, something going on. And the rest of the time, I want to be having a different interaction with my physician. You know, it's interesting right now as a, as a case study, you know, Juliet um, has been anemic her whole life, my wife, and um, always battled anemia, went on the pill, is probably convinced that going on the pill for so long is, is a cofactor of her breast cancer and but was on because again difficult to prove or disprove but on because of trying to not have not have a menstrual cycle so she could keep her blood in and not have her anemia be so you know prevalent when caroline was born six weeks premature um my 12 year old julia had seven transfusions of blood she lost so much blood and placenta previa and basically burned out her bone marrow again. So she's running around with her ferritin is like six, like six. Her hematocrit is low, like low 30s. And this is a three-time world champion, rower at Cal, and, and oral supplementation hasn't worked. Finally gets an iron transfusion after jumping through all the hoops and feels amazing. Her, her hematocrit bumps up like five points and her ferritin stores are up. And, 
And lo and behold, she goes through all the things, runs through the GI, through the camera. They do a colonoscopy just to make sure everything's cool. Not, not celiac, no, you know, uh, bowel disease. And maybe it's just this pernicious anemia she has. And, you know, part of her, you know, we know her genetics are that she has a mutated M2FHR gene. So she has to jump on the folate. She jumps on the B vitamins. She does all that stuff. But meanwhile, what her Kaiser doctor says, well, she says, well, you're not that anemic, you know? And Juliet's like, I am at the fucking bottom of the acceptable range and I am an athlete. And the doctor's like, well, you know, I don't want to tell you. And I was like, Juliet, your physician is a master at solving medical emergencies, not at untangling this complexity of your system. And, you know, that's a great example of, is the medicine world working? Well, no, we're just, it's a wrong application. We need to go find a specialist to help us figure this out. And the Kaiser family practitioner is really good at colds and picking up pediatric diseases and all these other complexities. This thing is not in a warehouse. So that's a good example of where you can feel frustrated by your medical system and say, by the way, it's not your physician's training. She doesn't even have the tools, doesn't even know where to begin to start that, right? And I think when it, certainly when it comes to behavior change, I, I don't necessarily think that is a physician's job, but our job is to recognize, is to make the recommendations That's right. for the behavior change and recognize what those changes should be. But as far as making the person change, that, that requires habit formation and, you know, there's all the things that go into that. But being able to say that either this is outside of my wheelhouse and I, and we need to find you someone who, who can help you or to, to say, well, I recognize that you need to move better. I can't tell you how to do that, but I can find you someone who can. And that's like right. that, and that piece that's is right. also missing. And that's the part that we still need to work on. I, I agree. With that. I love that. And I love just that. Hey, I am now on your team and we are going to solve this together. And it's going to take us a second, but let's start working on it. What resources have you brought patients to the table? You know, what have you found? Here's, you know, let me dig in. That means we need to make sure that our physicians have a little enough time to actually have that conversation, right? Like we're going to have to think differently about the structure because the physician would love to have that conversation. What an intellectually great problem to help your patient solve and, you know, feel less anemic and not gas out on the hills. So, you know, Again, I think what's interesting, and I try to remind people, the brain is the most sophisticated structure in the known universe, end period, attached to a physiology that is equally as sophisticated and complex, right? This brain and body is the most complex thing in the universe, and we are undergoing radical fundamental trans transitions in our societal structures, in our eating habits and our sleeping habits and our moving habits. And then we're like, all right, doctor, deal with it in eight minutes or less. And all I want people to say is hold on a second, right? That's, that's the framework. Um, you know, you should have, if you're a physician or a practitioner, you should have a sign behind you in neon lights that says it's complicated. That's okay. It's okay to recognize. But to your point where people are like, hey, you know, give me the pill. Like you point at the sign and be like, it's complicated. <laughs> and, and, I, and it's also even more complicated to appreciate how all of these complex behaviors interact, right? As you say, like there's so much going on. So one of the things that I want people to listen to and things that I'm really working on are, 
you know, I'm establishing what I think are musculoskeletal vital signs, right? What are movement vital signs? And they're all predicated on the ranges of motion that you doctors invented. They're just expressions of those things, right? Within one standard deviation, everyone's shoulder does this. So why can't you do that? Let's, let's, and more importantly, why don't people know they can't do that? Everyone knows 120 over 80 is okay blood pressure. It's not great blood pressure, but it's okay blood pressure. But, you know, if you can't put your arms over your head, it's totally fine, you know? And so we need to create musculoskeletal vital signs and then some behavioral vital signs so that it's not, you know, everyone knows what a high fever feels like and what to do about it, right? Well, what do you do when you're not sleeping? And the problem is we haven't been able to sell that or have those conversations, interventions. And that's one of the ways we can begin to simplify the complexity here. And also let's keep in mind that we'll never nail it. It'll never be perfect because someone came out of a tradition who wasn't exposed to this because they had food insecurity in their family or they had abuse or all of the other complex strata that makes behaviors and humans so dynamic and interesting and complex. So it's okay to start from scratch with people, but we also have to say, where can these people hear this? And it's gonna take a lifetime to work on it. And what I'll say and finish is saying, this is a worthy thing to spend your life doing is trying to improve you know, the society. I don't know if we're doing a good job. I mean, let yeah. me just say we're, we're doing a crap job. I mean, are there, is there less musculoskeletal pain, fewer surgeries? How's obesity doing docs? How are we doing diabetes? Oh, like boy. if we choose one thing we all give a crap about, I just hold this up to the physical therapist. I'm like, how are you doing physical therapists? More ACLs or less ACL injuries? Turns out you guys are shitting the bed. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> I guess we just need to have some radical different approaches to, to making this thing work better. Oh yeah. I mean, I agree. It's, it's, um, it's our responsibility, right? I mean, all of us, we didn't get into this to not help people. So we need to find a way where we can actually make a bigger difference. Cause obviously what we're doing isn't working. It's not working the way we want it to work. And yet we're working as hard as I think we've ever worked. I think the physicians right. I know today are working longer, crazier hours, doing more billing, more documentation, more. I mean, it's complicated to be a doctor right now. I don't think people realize I'm just going to have a stethoscope on. I'm going to talk to people about their knee pain. <laughs> yeah, right. Good luck with that. No, sir. That is not what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. So. Well, Kelly, I don't want to keep you the whole night. This has been awesome. <laughs> Where can people find you? Well, we are at the ready state. And one of the things that I, I'm just look, look, you guys work on your side. You can memorize liver enzymes and all of that stuff. That's fine. I'll work on my side and I'll meet you in the middle. And, you know, we'll never meet in the middle of the scrum. But what I want people to say is that we're saying, hey, look, there's some really low level things that you can be responsible for. And that's what we're trying to do with our platform. And so that you're actually, if you've exhausted all of those things, then you're in a position to really be able to have a great conversation with your physician. So we're at the ready state where we, we've been putting po content up for 10 years about simple musculoskeletal environmental behavior stuff. And look, I appreciate I'm a 238 pound wild, crazy man, right? I'm maybe not your voice, but there's a bunch of great voices out there. Just find one you like and start working, you know? And then um, I just want to thank you guys for taking this on and just the humility by saying, how do we improve the ball is such a powerful tonic to, you know, where we've come from. 
you know, because I purposely did not become a physician because I wasn't inspired by the kinds of care I thought physicians could, could administer at the time. And I also hate biochemistry, comma. Um, but, you know, what I'll, what I'll say is I think it right now is a really interesting time to be in healthcare. I think we are at a point where things can start to shift a little bit that I have hope, but we, the highest expression of science is to serve the humanities. And I don't think we're fulfilling that promise yet. Excellent. All right, guys, check it out. I'll throw the link in the bio. Kelly, thanks for coming on again. Oh, such a pleasure. I'm such a fan. Thanks so much.